Okay, let's go ahead and pray and uh, we'll get started. Lord, we thank you uh, that you're a God that has a plan. Uh, and even though mankind seems like they've messed it up and uh, have uh, unarranged some of your plans, uh, that that has done nothing to change what you had uh, from eternity past already set for right into the future. And so we pray today as we try and understand this concept of the kingdom of heaven that uh, we would be, uh, have a firm grasp on this so that we could better understand our parables. And this we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, if you got the sheet today, this is going to be one that you really kind of want to have the sheet for. I mean, sometimes you can not have it and get the things, but I think long term this will help. As you note, it is uh, at the top, understanding the kingdom of heaven. And uh, I got into uh, the next set of parables that we're going to look at is in Matthew chapter 13, and what you suddenly find is that there's eight parables there. Six of them start with this, the kingdom of heaven is like or is, and it explains it that way. It's all of a sudden that you suddenly have all these parables starting to talk about the kingdom of heaven. And uh, I was going and working yesterday through all of this and was planning on doing the parable of the soils, which is the very first one. Uh, people call it the parable of soil or sower, but it's not. It's the parable of the soils, but it's been misnamed that for years and you kind of go with people, okay. But <clears throat> I realized, you know, I need to spend time on what the kingdom of heaven is. Because if you get a firm understanding of what the kingdom of heaven is, what Jesus was talking about when it came to the Gospels, uh, in the Gospel stories, you'll understand uh, some of these parables better. They get misinterpreted at times because we don't understand, oh, he's talking about the kingdom of heaven. Oh, okay, this makes sense. So the question that I have in bold letters there at the top of the page is what is the kingdom of heaven slash God? Heaven or the kingdom of God? What is it? Okay, we'll put it this way. It is the time where the Messiah, you can insert the word Christ there, okay? We understand that, that Messiah is the Hebrew word, Mashiach, is the Hebrew word in the New Testament, the Greek word is Christos. It's the same thing. So it's interchangeable. The Jews would have been looking for the Messiah. Uh, we'd say, well, they were looking for their Christ. Same thing, okay? But whatever the case is, it is a time where the Messiah rules in righteousness upon the earth. That's very important in understanding the kingdom of heaven. Uh, it's when he rules on the earth. The Old Testament spoke often of a time of peace and righteousness that would come when the Messiah reigned. Now, if you look at your Bible, the whole of the Old Testament is working to the point of the kingdom being set up on earth. You go, really? Okay. Genesis 3. Mankind sins. Genesis 2, they were told, have dominion over the earth. Mankind sins. Not going to happen. From that point on, you have chaos in human affairs. Mankind doesn't get along with one another. And God is already putting into motion a, a putting in that will do the job that Adam never did. And you read Genesis, we've gone through Genesis 12 on Sunday mornings, and this promise to Abram that through him all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. 
It's a hinting of the gospel in that promise. The New Testament declares that. But that in him, not just the nation of Israel, the descendants, but a descendant is going to be a blessing to the whole nations. By the time you get to Genesis chapter 48 and 49, you know through what tribe this individual is going to come through. The tribe of Judah, because it's announced in prophecy that there's going to be one that's going to rule, he's going to hold the scepter, he's going to rule and be able to do this. The history of the nation of Israel is them uh, at times looking for a leader, and they finally get one that's after man's heart, a man by the name of Saul. That doesn't work out very well. It wasn't God's first choice, but he's basically giving a lesson that you want somebody that I've chosen and uh, so the people uh, go and put up with Saul. They finally get David. David's not perfect, but he is promised in 2 Samuel 7 that someone from his line will rule forever on the throne. That will be the ruler on earth. You go through the rest of the Old Testament, and there's all these promises, and a lot of the prophecies are about this, about the fact that there's going to be a time where there is going to be peace on earth, goodwill to men. That this one's going to bring in a time where there's not sickness. A child lives to a hundred years of age. A child is a hundred years old. I mean, this is all these prophecies of the weapons being beaten into plowshares. Okay, all of these prophecies, the nation of Israel is reading and looking forward to that there's a kingdom to come that is going to be set up on earth and it's going to find its center in Jerusalem and there's going to be one who comes and rules and reigns. You get to the end of the Old Testament, and they've gone almost 400 years without any kind of ruler. Almost 500 years. They've had foreign kings come through, Greeks and Romans and uh, individuals like that that have trodden them down. They're looking forward to this kingdom on earth. That's what they're looking for. A king who will bring this in. So this is the, the fervency that is there when John and Jesus come on the scene in the Gospels. These people are looking for the king who's going to bring peace. And when Jesus comes on uh, the scene, they are going to be preaching certain things. John and him are going to be doing this. Now, I need to step back a second here and ask, a second, or ask the second question that's here because this is one that commonly gets asked bold letters there. Is there any difference between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God? And what's the answer? No, it's there. See, it's in the, you, got the, you got that one. But <clears throat> understand what it means when you talk about the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God. Uh, this kingdom comes from God who is in heaven. Okay? Um, I mean, this had been something that God had intended for a long time that he would set a kingdom that was from heaven on earth. Psalm chapter 2, why do the heathen rage and imagine a vain thing? And they are going to rise up against the Lord and his anointed. But in the midst of this, he says this, God does, I'm going to set my anointed on the holy hill of Zion. And so I'm going to do this. I'm going to set up my kingdom on earth on a real place in Jerusalem. I'm going to do this. And here's the challenge that is made at the end of Psalms 2. It says this, 
Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings, be instructed, ye judges of the earth, serve the Lord with fear, rejoice with trembling. And then this verse, kiss the son, lest he be angry and ye perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. So one of the anchor columns of Psalm 1 and 2, if you understand those, you understand pretty much all the Psalms. This one's basically stating this, that you need to get prepared before the king shows up. You need to, well, lay down your arms against him, which would be what we would call the New Testament term repentance. But uh, we would also say this, trust in him, put faith in him before he comes with his judgment. So the nation of Israel has kind of had this, but also what you see is even in the book of Daniel, you have this story where Daniel sees all the kingdoms of the world, the Babylonians, the Persians. He sees uh, the Grecian Empire and the Roman Empire. And then you see the scene in heaven where you have the Ancient of Days sitting in the clouds and the Son of Man comes and he shows up, and to him is given dominions and kingdoms and rulership. He is going to rule all over all these empires. He's given the responsibility that he's going to be king. The Jews are looking at this, and so when you have this idea of kingdom of heaven, it's a kingdom whose source is heaven. It's not in heaven. Its source is from heaven. It's from God. It's unlike any other kingdom ever in human history. It's a kingdom that finds its source in and from God. Now, the, the secondary aspect of this, is there a difference between kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God? No. If you've got a Schofield reference Bible, he tries to make a big deal about the fact that there's a difference between kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God, and no one else really pushes this, but because it was in the Schofield notes, they're like, oh, it's got to be true. And you're like, no. <clears throat> The only reason that it's probably you see kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God is in there is that kingdom of heaven is always in the book of Matthew. Luke and, or Mark and Luke, which are the other ones that have the same parallel stories, exact stories, are using kingdom of God. The explanation that some come up with is this, that Matthew's writing to Jews because he's presenting in Matthew that Jesus is king and he's writing to Jews that he writes kingdom of heaven rather than kingdom of God because the Jews didn't really like to say the name of God lest they sin. So um, there, there is that element and there's no difference between them. But what does it mean, you know, kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God? It's referring to a kingdom whose source is from God and is powered by one from heaven. So that's uh, these two notes, okay? So is there a difference between these two? No, okay? This is a kingdom that is this way. So what was taught in the Gospels about the kingdom? Okay, what are we seeing going on in the kingdom? Well, if you read the book of Matthew, you find out right from the start there's kings of the world and the king being born. Jesus is being born. And you go into this, and once he starts ministering, there's one who comes before him like a messenger, and he's proclaiming a message, Matthew chapter 5, I want you to turn there because we'll eventually get there, but you see in Matthew chapter 3 and verse 1, a statement where John the Baptist comes preaching in the wilderness of Judea saying, repent ye for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And when John gets into prison, 
Jesus takes up his ministry, and you see in Matthew 4, verse 17, that Jesus began to preach and to say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, when they're preaching this message, what they're saying is, get prepared because the kingdom is close. It's not here yet. Okay? He's not saying the kingdom's arrived. In your notes, you have this, that Jesus and John both preached the kingdom of God is at hand. This means that it was near. It does not mean that it had arrived. If you come to that conclusion that he's saying that the kingdom arrived, then you're going to start saying, well, if the kingdom's already arrived, then the kingdom is the church. And then you got all sorts of interpretation issues that we'll talk about at the end that have played out in world history and gone well when that has happened. He's just simply saying, John and Jesus are saying, the kingdom has drawn nigh. It's close. And what you need to do in order to be ready for it is you need to repent, which is, as a Jew, you need to repent because you're not ready to go into the kingdom. Why? Because you're a rebel against God. All Jews were rebels against God. But they thought, well, because we're Jews, we'll be a part of the kingdom. And uh uh-uh. No, you have to repent of your sins, realize that you're a sinner, and then ultimately believe in the one who is uh, the one that you're supposed to have faith in. And so as you see your notes there, okay, they're preaching that the kingdom is near. They're not declaring it had arrived. They both preached repentance as key to going into the kingdom. But as part of repentance, faith would need to be placed upon the king. That's that whole Psalm 2 thing. Now kiss the son, pay homage to him, put your trust in him before he comes to judge you for your sins. The two sides of the coin of being a part of this kingdom. So when they're preaching this, they're preparing the way for a kingdom that is almost here, but not here yet. So people need to get prepared and ready for this. And Matthew chapter 5 is the opening statement of Jesus saying, here is what I want you to understand about the kingdom of heaven. The Sermon on the Mount is in the very first portion of Matthew, but it didn't happen in the first part of Jesus' ministry. It's actually towards the center of his ministry on the timeline. It's on the center of his ministry, not at the beginning of it. But what Matthew is trying to do is right from the start is to get people to understand, okay, he's going to make a statement about his kingdom. And see how it starts off there before you even get into the story. Jesus comes and he sits down on a mountain and he has everybody around him and he begins to proclaim certain things. You go, who gets to sit down and make declarations? You know, in our culture, it's the opposite. Our presidents stand when they speak and these type of things. You go to England and when the queen speaks, she rarely stands. She oftentimes when she's making official proclamations is seated because this is what royalty does. And so it starts this way, but when you read the Sermon on the Mount, you have your notes, it says this, the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 through 7, declared what was necessary to enter into the kingdom. And we would know this is the section as the Beatitudes. See, most people, when it comes to the Beatitudes, they go, oh, it's nice statements and, you know, how I ought to be and whatever. Well, no, it's actually starting off with what you need to be in order to be a part of the kingdom. 
Because if you don't have these things, you're not going to be a part of the kingdom. Just read through them. Verse number three, it says this, blessed are the poor in spirit. And what does it then say? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They have the kingdom of heaven. It's theirs. You know, what does it mean to be poor in spirit? The word behind this is not just merely poor, it's bankrupt. You have no funding. In fact, you're in debt. So a person who's debt in their spirit realizes, okay, I've offended a God, and my, I, I have no credit to my account, and in fact, I owe. And a person who starts that way realizes, okay, I need this, is the starting on the road to repentance. Look at verse 4. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. And it's not saying, you know, if you're unhappy, this is a promise that God's going to give you comfort. No, this isn't the, the, the the entry to salvation concept. A person who's moved by their sins will find comfort. And you have verse number five, blessed are the meek. Okay, and you say, what's that? Meek is the idea of humbling oneself, swallowing your pride. And what are they going to inherit? They're going to inherit the earth. It doesn't say heaven. Okay. So this is all kingdom stuff that's going on here. And then you find this, verse 6. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Here's a person who's looking for righteousness. What the Holy Spirit's work for sinners is this. He convinces them of sin. And we usually say righteousness, but I, I like it in reverse. Sin, judgment. Okay, the judgment's coming. And righteousness, you go, well, what of righteousness? Because you don't have a righteousness, and you need someone else's righteousness. He's having you look to see if there's someone who can pay off your debt. And so when a person goes, I have nothing, I have nothing on my account, I owe debts, is there anyone that can pay this who has a righteousness that matches up here? Okay, that's where you have the element of belief. And so when you start off these Beatitudes, it's right from the start. You want to be a part of this kingdom. Here's the entry to it. Okay, it's not birth. It's not nation status, uh, whatever. It's you have to do these things personally. But then you get to the end of the Beatitudes and you get a reflection of what people like this are like. If they've done this, look at verse number uh, seven. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart. You go, what's pure in heart? You've had your sins forgiven, taken care of, you're you're credited to your account. What are you going to do? Well, you're going to see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are they for persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So you start off, and it's right a declaration. You want to be a part of this kingdom? This is what it's like. If you are one who's a citizen of this kingdom you know, you've already gained entry, you're going to reflect this by your life. You're going to be salt. You're going to be light. And then if you don't quite understand what I was telling you as the king, when I gave you the Old Testament, some of you misconstrue this, some of you think this, that I haven't murdered anybody, but I'm going to tell you this, you know, you've heard of old time, thou shalt not commit murder, but I'm going to say to you, if you say Raka. You go, what's that? Blockhead. You're in danger of the judgment. You know what? Your words are murderous. You go, why? Because they come out of a murderous heart. And what the Lord's saying is, listen, it's not just your actions, it's your heart attitude that you're going to be working on. 
as reflected as part of this kingdom. And so you go through and you get understanding on how you're supposed to do your giving and how you're supposed to pray in chapter 6 and where your treasure ought to be. Well, it's not just merely in this life. And then you get to end of chapter 6 and it says uh, this, um, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Okay, you seek, you seek the important things, the getting ready to be a part of the kingdom of heaven. And guess what? God's going to take care of everything else. Your earthly needs here, he's going to take care of them. So you get, the, you get those spiritual matters taken care of. And you get to the end of Matthew chapter 7, and it's this whole thing. If you hear my words, you're like a wise man who built his house upon the rock. And when the rains came and all the things came, the judgment comes, this house stands firm. But we have the foolish man who hears my words and ignores it. Uh, it's like a man who builds his house in the sand, and when the storms come and the waves rage uh, and the floods come, great is the fall of that house. And then he ends it. And then people go, wow, he speaks like one who's got... This is the statement at the end of chapter 7. They go, he's speaking like he's got authority. He's speaking like a king. I mean, that, that's what they're saying. So when you get to start off here... Sermon on the Mount is an introduction of how to get into the kingdom and what kingdom living is like. Then you get to chapters 8 through 10, 11, basically, and it's a whole bunch of miracles. And you go, why is that? Well, Jesus' miracles, that's the blank that's there, displayed what the kingdom will be like when there is the absence of sin and death. I mean, you just go through the miracles that he has. He's got people who are blind. He heals them. People are lame that he helps them to walk. He has people who have leprosy. They're unclean. And he cleanses those things. Uh, and finally, you get to the story in Matthew 9 or 10, I can't remember which one it is, um, where Jesus raises somebody from the dead. And you go, what is Jesus doing there? Is he just trying to make people feel good? Well, okay, that's one of the side benefits there. He's making their lives better. But, but the side benefit of this is you're seeing what is it going to be like in the kingdom when there isn't sickness and disease going on on earth? Where children are living 100 years. Kids are playing in, in dens of snakes and they're fine. You don't have wars going on. What is it like when you don't have those type of things going on? They got a foretaste of what the kingdom would be like when Jesus ruled and reigned. That's what these miracles are pointing to. Hey, if you're thinking, you know, this one may be the Messiah, look at the miracles and you're kind of going, whoa, this is sort of like what is promised to us in the the coming kingdom uh, through this individual. And so they're seeing all of this. So you get to chapter 12, and chapter 12 is one of the pivotal chapters in the gospel. It doesn't seem to be right up front, but it is, okay? It's kind of hidden. It's, it's not really, you know, obvious, but it's going to be pivotal. And I want us to turn to Matthew 12, and we'll just stay here the rest of the time, but here you have Jesus has done all these works and uh, has done all these miracles. And chapter 12, Jesus starts to have confrontations with the Pharisees who are the religious leaders of Israel. They're the leaders of Israel. Chapter 12, verse 1, he gets in trouble. At that time, Jesus went on the Sabbath day through the corn, that's through the wheat, and his disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck the ears of corn and to eat. What they're doing is they're going through, and they're pulling the wheat, and they're going like this and tilling the top of it and having a a granola snack. That's what they're doing. And the Pharisees are going, oh, 
no, you can't do that. You're tilling, that's work, and you can't do that on the Sabbath day. That's horrible. And Jesus uses an illustration, and it's not a random illustration. What's the illustration right after that? Anybody you know, see who he's going to use as an illustration? David. It's not an accident he uses David. It's a story where David, he goes, have you not heard the story where David, when he was hungered, went into the temple, and they gave him the bread that he wasn't supposed to eat of, only the priest, and he ate of it? Am I not the Lord of the Sabbath? And then, and then they have a second thing that happens, that the Pharisees are rubbing their hands together going, hmm, what can we do to confront him again? And so what they do is they bring in a man that has a withered hand into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and they do this in order that they might accuse him. And Jesus knows their heart, and he goes, well, is it good to heal a man? I mean, you would on the Sabbath day go out and find an animal that's fallen into a hole and you would pull him out, but this is a man who's created in the image of God, and is it okay to do good to a man like this on the Sabbath day? So that you know that I am Lord, the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath day, he tells the man to stretch forth his hand, his hand's healed. And it's at this point when this miracle takes place, verse number 14, then the Pharisees went out and held a council against him how they might destroy him. It's at this point the Pharisees go, okay, we got to get rid of him. We got to kill him. So Jesus then goes, and what you find is that there is another miracle that takes place in verse 22. They were brought to him, one that was possessed with the devil, blind and dumb, and he healed him, insomuch that the blind and the dumb both spake and saw. And here's the people's response. Okay, this is not accidental. And all the people were amazed and said, is not this the son of David? This is the king. This, 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 is, this is the guy. This is the one. He's... But immediately as soon as they say that, the Pharisees shut it down. They immediately shut it down. Verse 24, here's what they say. But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, this fellow doth not cast out devils, but by Beelzebub, the prince of devils. He is not on our side. He's on the devil's side. So what you have in your notes here is this, okay? You got that full paragraph that's at the bottom of your page there, okay? Nation of Israel is offered the choice of Jesus as their king, as Messiah and Christ, Matthew 12 was the culmination of all that Jesus was offering. However, the Pharisees were resistant from the beginning. They questioned his actions and his miracles. The people wonder if Jesus might be the son of David and thus the king. But the Pharisees claim that Jesus was from the devil and of another kingdom. He's an opposing kingdom. He's, he follows another prince. He's not the one you're supposed to look for. So you go to the back page, uh, and in your Bible, you just kind of follow out what is said here. And Jesus, who knows their thoughts, uses this illustration. He talks about kingdoms. Verse 25, he said unto them, every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. Every city or house divided against itself shall not stand. If Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How shall then his kingdom stand? And if I, by Beelzebub, cast out devils, by whom, your ch- by whom do your children cast them out? Therefore, they shall be your judges. And so then he says this, Okay, he goes, okay, a house divided against itself cannot stand. That's kind of where we get this term from. But verse 31, 
Jesus then says this, Wherefore I say unto you, all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men, but the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost shall not be forgiven unto men. Whosoever speaketh the word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whosoever speaketh against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven him, neither in this world, neither in the world to come. Either make the tree good and the fruit good, or else make the tree, or make the tree corrupt and his fruit corrupt, for the tree is known by his fruit. O generation of vipers, how can ye, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaketh. It's in this context that Jesus suddenly says, you have committed the unpardonable sin. Look at your notes here. This is an important point in the gospel. From this point, the kingdom is never described again as being at hand. You read through the gospels, it's not described that way ever again. The Pharisees, okay, so yeah, it's not described as being at hand, blank there. Uh, the Pharisees, as the representatives of the nation of Israel, had committed the unpardonable sin of questioning Christ's work. That's the unpardonable sin. Here they have Christ in front of them. They've seen all the miracles. The Holy Spirit's working on convincing them, and they're going, oh, no. He's, he's doing this by Beelzebub. He's not really the, the king we're supposed to look for. And all of the evidence to this point, the declarations, the actions, the miracles, the words, everything ignored by the Pharisees, and they deny it. And it's at this point where the Lord goes, okay, fine. You're not going to see the kingdom. Because it's not coming right now. You go, how do you know that? Well, you look at chapter 13, which is right after this, and from this point, Jesus began to talk about the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. You have eight parables, all of them hidden meanings, except for people who actually are really wanting to know what the message is. And what you will find, there's eight parables there. Six of them are specifically declared the kingdom of heaven is similar to something. And it's talked about in verse 13 of, uh, excuse me, chapter 13, verse 11, Jesus is talking to his disciples and saying, why am I speaking in parables? Well, here's why. Because it was given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it is not given. You say, what, are, what is a mystery in a Bible sense? Well, here it is. A mystery in the Bible is something that has not been revealed before but now is made known. See, people in the Old Testament, they viewed salvation and the kingdom all together. When you read those prophecies from an Old Testament perspective, you have some verses that talk about what we now know as armchair quarterbacks looking back. We can look at the Old Testament and go, oh, that's talking about the first coming, and that's talking about the second coming of Christ. But Jews looking forward saw salvation and the kingdom all coming at once. I mean, these, these, these prophecies are together. And the idea that there were two comings of Christ were not clear to the people in the Old Testament. And what Jesus suddenly is now saying, I'm going to reveal some things to you that have not been revealed to this point, and I'm now going to reveal it to you because there is a, a, a clearing up of the understanding of people about the kingdom of heaven. That's not going to happen in the way that they actually were assuming. 
And your note says this, as far as the Jews were concerned, the Messiah was going to come once to set up his kingdom. That's it. However, Jesus now revealed that he was coming a second time. That's the blank that's there. A second time to set up his kingdom. And what some people describe this in theological circles is this, is that the kingdom reign of Jesus is postponed. Was Jesus genuinely offering them the opportunity to have the kingdom? What if they said, we accept our king? Now, that would have provided some weird details because Jesus still had to die for sins. That's the only way sins would get paid for. But he is offering them this. It's near. It's, it's close. Get ready. Repent. It's, it's, it's you know, right on the doorstep here. You, you, you know, and then it all of a sudden stops. What do you have? It's postponed. And what we know, it's been postponed for at least 2,000 years. Kind of go, that's a long time. Yeah, it is. But for the Jews, they would have never recognized this from the Old Testament. And so what you have is uh, the fact that there is a gap in between the Lord's first and second coming that people didn't understand. Now, your, your notes here say this, the Messiah would now die for sins. Okay, he is going to do this. He was going to have to do this anyhow, but he's going to die for sins. He would be able to save his people from their sins. Remember, that's why Jesus named Jesus, because he will, in the birth story, he will save people from their sins, his people. Jesus then rose again, ascended to heaven to come back again to set up his kingdom on earth. For now, God works through groups like the, and I say groups, okay, because there are going to be several different groups, groups like the church to call people to salvation until Jesus comes again to establish his kingdom on earth. So right now, Understand, we're not the kingdom. The church is not the kingdom. Sometimes your songs and hymns suggest that. Uh, it's, it's not the church is the, the kingdom. We are a group that is proclaiming the same message that John and Jesus proclaimed, repent and believe. The good news. What's the good news? There's a king who's actually come and taken care of things. He did this by the death on his cross. And he's coming again, and you need to be prepared because he's going to judge. And we preach the same message that these individuals were preaching, but we're not the kingdom. Kingdom's not here right now. Do we have kingdom-like responsibilities? The answer is yes. Okay? We, we are not bringing the kingdom in, but we should be acting like what the Sermon on the Mount says. because we're eventually going to have a part in the kingdom. I'll explain that one, how we do that. But understand, there's going to be a time when the church isn't around. So what happens? You have the tribulation, the church is raptured out. So who, what's the group doing the work of proclaiming the news before the Lord comes back? 144,000 witnesses, two witnesses in the book of Revelation. You have others who get saved that are proclaiming the name of Christ, that they're martyred, but it's not the church. It's just this group that are proclaiming the same message. You need to replant and believe that Jesus is who he says he is and do this. And then the Lord is going to come back to earth and set up his kingdom. It's not going to be at hand anymore. It's, you know, it's close. People in the tribulation can go, a kingdom's coming. It's close. So you have this. Now, your notes, 
have this. The kingdom parables explain what is going on until the kingdom comes on earth at Christ's second coming. What you've got is some stories of what's going on right now. That's not necessarily the kingdom, but getting people prepped for the kingdom to show up. You got these stories where the owner goes away and then they come back and you go, well, what's, the, what's being talked about here? Well, it's the Lord coming back the second time to set up his kingdom. That's the, the hinting at in these stories. Um, so you have these uh, parables. Some of the parables speak about the nature of the kingdom because it's going to be described in different ways in the, the middle of the kingdom parables of what it's like. It's small and suddenly explodes in size. You know, it's insignificant, unseen, and suddenly it's there and massive. Um, so you have some of that, so you have some of the nature of the kingdom while others talk about the activities uh, in the kingdom or activities up to the kingdom, okay? So you have all of that, all right? Do we understand that when we talk about the kingdom of heaven, we're not talking about heaven? I mean, this is where we sometimes get off the tracks when it comes to our parables. We think kingdom of heaven, oh, it's talking about heaven. You're going, no, no, no. It's the kingdom of God on earth. It's the one sourced from heaven that is going to solve man's problems here on earth, a kingdom that's going to be set up here buy one. So when you sometimes read these parables, it might be that we want to suddenly go, and when it says, you know, this, this is the kingdom of heaven is similar to this, and we want to go, oh, it's talking about heaven here. No, no, it's talking about the kingdom here on earth. You'll be able to understand your parables easier if you're going from that perspective. You can get some weird interpretations if you're thinking that the kingdom of heaven is talking about heaven. Now, Here's the question at the end. Is the church the kingdom? And the answer is no. It is not. The church preaches the same message of repentance and belief in Christ, in the Messiah. Okay, we, we preach the same message. Nothing's changed there. Those that are saved and part of the church will one day enjoy a role in that kingdom. Okay, R-O-L-E, you go to rule. What do you mean by that? <clears throat> Have you ever thought about when it talks about we will reign with Christ? We're a kingdom of priests and kings. You go, but we're not part of the kingdom. It's not right now. There are going to be a couple parables that point to the fact that the way that we live our life now, when the king comes back, he's giving us responsibilities. Your faithfulness now gives you opportunities in the future. You go, oh, so we're going to help Jesus rule and reign on earth. It's going to be like this. I've thought about this. What would it have been like to be Adam and work in the Garden of Eden when there's no weeds and everything gets watered? What's the work there? Just, I, you know, going around enjoying it, doing whatever? What's it going to be like to help Jesus rule over the earth? When there's not the open sin, all the problems that governments have to deal with right now, food supply, health, wars, security, taken care of. Hmm, 
What's this going to be like for a thousand years? I don't know. But some of these, these, these parables are going to indicate the fact that individuals and how they live now, it's going to affect what they're doing in the kingdom. Not that it's, you know, a thing about salvation or anything like that. It's just that there's going to be responsibility. And so you kind of go, okay, some of these parables are going to make sense if I'm thinking along those lines. Now, end of notes here. It's actually the middle of the paragraph. However, the church is not bringing the kingdom in. Okay, we, we are not bringing the kingdom in. There have been too many wars caused by the fact of the church thinking it's the kingdom. A, it's the nation of Israel, or it's setting up the kingdom like the nation of Israel was hoping for. The wars of the Crusades were trying to, and you have this, they're talking about the kingdom of heaven versus the kingdom of earth, and that we are fighting to establish the kingdom of heaven. So the Crusades are talking about um, and so by the point of the sword, they're trying to establish the church uh, and establish the kingdom of God on earth. Okay? So the church is not Israel. It's not the kingdom. We're not working to bring the kingdom in. What do we have to do to bring the kingdom in? Nothing. Because here is what happens is that one day Jesus will return to earth at his second coming. He will establish the kingdom after the tribulation with mainly Jewish individuals who are saved and physically enter into the kingdom on earth. You're going to have the Jews in a day look on him whom they have pierced and they will believe. When he comes back and steps on the Mount of Olives, there's going to be a sudden change where they will weep and mourn and they will believe and look on him who they pierced. Those individuals will go directly into that kingdom. Okay, they'll enjoy living in the kingdom and having children and great grandchildren and great great grandchildren. You're also going to have, and your notes indicate this, that there's also Gentiles who are saved and survive the tribulation, and they will also directly physically go into the kingdom. They're going to go into this, and you're going to have nations. You have Zechariah talking about this. Nations come to see Jesus in Jerusalem to see the Messiah. And so you have Gentiles who survive the tribulation and put faith in Jesus Christ and they go directly into this and they have children, great-grandchildren. I've thought about this. Uh, can you imagine what the population explosion is going to be when you don't have wars and diseases and all of this type of thing going on, even though you read in the tribulation that at least half the world's population, if not three-fourths of the world's population, ends life and you're going to start, you know, and you still have unsaved people in that total when eventually the Lord comes back. So you're going to have this small group of people. Well, what's it going to be like after a thousand years? What's the population going to be like? You know, they think they got population explosion problems right now. Uh, imagine what it would be like for a thousand years where you have life multiplying out because it's a healthy environment. And so at the end, believers that have been raised from the dead or raptured will help rule and reign in that kingdom. That's your responsibility. You'll be a part of that kingdom, enjoying, you know, some of the explanations and whatever, you know, to people. What's it like to, you know, who's this Jesus? You know, I, I, you know well, you know what? Let's go, let's go take a walk to Jerusalem. You know, let's go talk to the king. These type of things may be part of what our responsibility is. Um, 
Don't know. But uh, then at the end of the thousand years, what happens? Well, you read Revelation 20, Satan's released for a short period of time, and you have people who live in a perfect environment that rebel against God. You go, oh, that would never happen. Uh, Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve, perfect environment, one rule. They break it. The angels of heaven who had the opportunity to be in the very presence of God. They glorify God. They could see him. The devil himself, who is kind of the, the chief of staff for God, rebels against God and is cast out. They're in a perfect environment. They choose to rebel. So here you got people who are born into the kingdom that are able to see all the niceties and be able to talk directly to Christ, be able to do this and see what goes on, that they will believe the lie of the devil. And what happens is they attempt to gather against Jerusalem and in an instant, everything we know is vaporized. We have the great white throne judgment. And then after that, you have a new heaven and a new earth. And you have this city that is 1,500 miles square or cubed, uh, actually come down and rest upon that new earth. The gates are open so that people can go in and out and enjoy the new creation. Here you have God ruling on the earth for ever. So technically you might be able to say the kingdom of heaven is heaven because eventually the Lord is going to rule on the earth forever and ever and ever and ever and heaven's going to be there, but heaven's different than the earth. So, anyhow, questions. Uh, we had a couple questions this morning. Yes. Known, known. It's not like our mysteries where you're sitting there trying to solve the mystery. You know, let's let's take all the fact clues and put it together and go, aha. No, what a mystery in the Bible is when you see that term, it's just simply saying, this is something they didn't understand in the past. I'm now revealing it to you so that you can understand. Yes. I have another question. Mm-hmm. You mentioned uh, the kingdom reign of Jesus is postponed. Mm-hmm. Well, 2023, but we're at least at 2,000 years, so yeah. Yeah, so it's been postponed. The kingdom hasn't happened for at least that amount of time, even though he was saying it's near, it's not. We know it's been 2,000 years, and so we're just waiting for the Lord to come back, which could be seven years from now that he would show up because you still have to have the tribulation. Anybody else? So if you get this right, the kingdom of heaven is not talking about heaven. It's talking about the kingdom here on earth. The Jews were looking forward to. Then you're suddenly going, oh, okay, it makes a little bit more sense. 